I think since I was born, I have just had a weird fixation on the truth and a visceral, intense reaction to lying. And so I mean, it's funny, the language you use, you said, why did you want to avoid acting like a predator? <laughs> That's kind of a, a, a soft pitch question. Like, well, yep. who'd want to be one? I guess if it makes you wealthy. Welcome to Entrepreneur Struggle, where we talk to entrepreneurs about their journey, creating and scaling up their businesses and freelance operations, while also really focusing on some of the mental and emotional challenges along the way. I'm Chris Colbert, the founder and CEO of the podcast and media company, DCP Entertainment, as well as the podcast and video recording space, Podstream Studios, Times Square. In this conversation, I'm talking to Patrick Geddes. Patrick is the co-founder and former CEO of the asset management firm, Aperio Group. Patrick didn't intend on becoming an entrepreneur, but his passion for ethics in the investment industry led him to creating and selling a highly successful business, as well as writing a book called Transparent Investing. We talked about a lot, and I made sure we got some good investing tips along the way, including why women are better investors than men. But we begin our conversation with Patrick's journey from corporate CFO to startup entrepreneur. It wasn't quite that linear path. So um, I'd been the CFO at Morningstar, and I got fired. They, they, they canned me. Um, and then I was looking around what to do, and I was actually uh, teaching investment theory just as a way to make ends meet. Um, when my co-founder, fellow named Paul Soley, he looked me up. He's the networker. And that's what really started the whole uh, creative process. So uh, I had a lot of skills I was bringing to that set, but entrepreneurial vision was not among them. <laughs> like, was, was your confidence shot after being let go as a, like, because you're at the highest levels of, you know, of, of an executive board, you know, as a chief fi- uh, financial yeah. officer? Yeah. Um, my confidence shot. Uh, obviously, any getting fired is never a good thing. And it was funny because once I became CEO and was running a company, we had some very rigid rules about you never let anyone go unless they knew it was coming. Like, you got to try and fix this. So it was more that um, I didn't know how to bring together my, let's call it prickly ethical sense and the sort of financial reality. and And the reality that I loved finance. It's such a fun field, both corporate finance and, and, and the investment side. So um, it would be pretty misleading to imply I knew how that path needed to play out. In hindsight, it turned out to be incredibly fortunate, but in a way, I kind of fell into it. As I said, my, uh, my partner, a, a, a client of his asked should I take this course at the University of California, Berkeley Extension? And he looked at it and he just thought, who is this guy? I, I need to talk to him. And that's how it all got started. It was his initiative. I, cause I'm not, I, I don't have that kind of entrepreneurship in my, in my DNA. I ended up becoming one, but it was not an obvious path for me. It sounds like you know, we have a kind of similar path in terms of like, I call it the um, reluctant entrepreneur. Uh, and it's like, yeah, we just kind of fell yeah. into becoming an entrepreneur because at least in my case, it was, there was a problem that needed to be solved. Reluctant and, entrepreneur. I'd never heard that term, but boy, does that apply to me? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you just kind of fall into entrepreneurship and we make the best of it. And in your case, like, it seems like you really made the best of it. You guys eventually sold the BlackRock. And so let me just back up a second here and have you explain what was, what is a Perio group and then what eventually led to the, the sale. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll go from sure. there, but yeah, just tell me a little bit more about the company. Sure. 
so when when I, I met my co-founder, we were exploring different ways to try and address the need in the investment industry for a very uh, ethical data-based um, approach as opposed to a, a sales approach. And we ended up coming up with this idea of it kind of together of a, like a custom version of indexing. So indexing has been around since 1971. Uh, Vanguard helped make it very popular. Um, and, and then we came in with a version that actually had been done, but not quite the way we were doing it, of focusing on the, the very wealthy, um, bring uh, some techniques you can do only when you've got what's called a separately managed account, when you own all the individual securities. Uh, you can really help on the tax side. You can do a lot of um, uh, interesting screening on impact, environmental or social, whatever. Um, and so we ended up developing this product that early on we would um, be explaining why indexing was better than active. Then the world kind of caught up, especially after the 0809 meltdown. And uh, suddenly a lot of people started getting irritated with the industry and realizing, boy, indexing is a, is a very sensible, low cost, low BS choice. Um, and then uh, by say around 2019, 2020, suddenly what we were doing, this what's often called tax loss harvesting, became incredibly hot and and a, a must-have. And a lot of all the big firms were buying up firms who'd done this. So people would hope for the answer to the question, you know, you must have had great vision of where the market was going. We had some, there's also a huge advantage of being standing in the right place when the when the flood comes through. And we that applied to us. Like we couldn't have predicted that indexing was, which was doing well, was suddenly going to dominate, and that this this um, more customized, fancy version we were doing would suddenly become a hot thing, and that that was just completely unexpected. Well, and yeah, you guys were innovating in the space. Clearly, you know, I think you said everybody caught up, but you all were leading that that train there. Uh, yeah, in the sense of um, we were providing the basic. Um, strategy of tax loss harvesting it's like indexing but you buy all the individual stocks and more or less you hold the ones that go up and you sell the ones that have gone down and then rebalance to to make it look a lot like like an index fund that was already being done we didn't invent that the part where we were really innovating was uh pushing hard on the customization and saying if you're wealthy enough why would you just buy a, an index fund or an etf when you could have this custom version. And that was the part where we innovated. And what was fun about that was it brought both the ethics and a whole kind of client service ethos and a, a customization where the industry was basically viewing that as customization, like that introduced costs. Why would you want to do that? And of course our answer was the way, you know, most entrepreneurs think, well, I'd want that. Um, wouldn't it be great? And and that was the part where we were really innovating. But it took it took a while for that to catch on and get traction. So there was a whole patience thing, and it yeah, it did happen to to uh, play out very favorably. Well, and we'll talk you know more about this uh, as we go through this conversation. And, you know, you put out a book, Transparent Investing, and 
you know, you as you were talking about Aperio Group, you were talking about how the ethical aspect, it was really important for you all and making sure that things weren't predatory and educating, you know, these clients or, or audiences that you may have. Why is that so important to you? I think since I was born, I've just had a weird fixation on the truth and a visceral, intense reaction to lying. And so I mean, it's funny, the language you use, you said, why did you want to avoid acting like a predator? <laughs> That's kind of a, a, a soft pitch question. Like, well, yep. who'd want to be one? I guess if it makes you wealthy. And so um, I, I'd always gotten myself in trouble by speaking. In fact, I, I was talking to a high school friend about 10 years ago and saying, you know, I really got obsessed with the truth when I was in my 40s and 50s. And she looked at me and said, uh, Patrick, you were that way in high school. Like, teachers actually find you found you kind of a pain because you would always push on kind of, you know, what assumptions, where's, where's the BS here? So <laughs> that was just a, a, a part of my personality. That's both, uh, it's a two edged sword. It's both very beneficial. And, you know, you can ask my friends or spouse, like it's got a real irritating quality too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People don't always want to hear the truth, but I, I understand that sentiment. And no, no. <laughs> And part of why I asked it is, you know, I think the preconceived notion of people in investing or anybody that's kind of working in financial fields is as a consumer, as a potential client, like my assumption is that those people are just trying to make the most money as possible. And so they, by trade, they are predatory. And so that's why I want to ask that question. But also that then begets, you know, as somebody who's working in that space and as somebody who's trying not to be that way, or not say trying, who's someone who is not that yep. way, do you get frustrated of the preconceived yep. notions that people have when they when they meet you? Just based on the, no, the field that you're in? No, because the funny thing is your wariness, your skepticism is earned and valid. The tricky part is that you neither want to trust everything my industry says because even when I hear the term investment advice, I think the first thing people should think is view it as a sales pitch. Investment advice, even for the, for the media, is about clickbait and getting people drawn in. But it's also too cynical to say it's all a ripoff. They can't help you at all, do anything to benefit you. You got to do it yourself. And that, that leaves people like, what? Wait a minute. I, I can't. I, what if I need my hand held? I don't understand some of this stuff. So it's this very tricky dance that I try and address in the, in the book around figure out what, you're, what you need and be extremely wary about certain parts of the industry. But there are still a lot of services investment experts provide that are really valuable. So it's this unfortunate challenge as a consumer around, well, how do I tell when I'm getting good advice and when I'm getting ripped off? That's, that's not all that easy to do. Although the irony is that the industry also is deeply um, uh, uh, reliant on signaling to the world investing is really, really complicated and you should be intimidated by it. And I, you know, and the, the, the quant work we did, we did some very fancy, complicated stuff, but a lot of investing is vastly more simple than most people presume and that the investment industry wants you to think. So there's this weird sort of paradox of 
of actually simple can be terrific and along the same lines doing nothing can be terrific when of course our brain like in a market like now we're constantly thinking like i got to tweak i got to make adjustments no no sit tight and do nothing and that's so counterintuitive so that's why you know as i say in in the book the investment industry is one big strike against all of us and the way our brains are wired is the other big strike yeah, I, I learned that lesson in terms of what you were just saying of like, yeah, when the market is down, don't go selling, don't try to move things around. I learned that through your website, through this little squirrel animation that you had up there. Uh, so I, I love your approach of how like you make things fun and informative, but yet, uh, I'm going to use the wrong term here probably, but you kind of dumb it down so it's easy to understand because it, to your point, it's not that complicated. But I think in what you were just saying, you hit on the biggest hurdle. I know for me when it comes to investing, which is it is so complicated, at least the way I'm looking at it, the way I've been told. And so I kind of go into shutdown mode. So instead of investing, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to invest until I can fully figure this whole investment thing out which then means never because I don't have the time to dedicate to learning all yep. the bells and yep. whistles and all the terms that they throw at me. And so, yeah, yep. for, you know, for yep. what you're doing, you're helping people to understand that this isn't that complicated. And is that what led to you creating the book as well with uh, transparent investing? Well, the, the, yeah, actually, let me just follow up on that. The point you made about it. People are shocked when I tell them how much time I, they really have to put into monitoring their investments, like two hours every three years. Oh, wow. That's not it. a huge time commitment. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really light. Um, uh, you asked, where did that come from? Um, the origin was San Francisco Magazine wrote an article on the history of indexing, which was invented in San Francisco in 1971. And about a third of the article was about our firm, Aperio Group. And we had, I think we kept track, it was over 700 calls, people calling in saying, this sounds great. You know, I want to sign up with you. And we didn't really offer what's what I define in the book as wealth management, which is like, here, how, what should my portfolio look like? And, and we would, at first we started talking to people. We'd spend like 20 or 30 minutes with each of them. We realized, oh, this isn't sustainable. Let's do some free seminars. And we did a couple of free seminars in San Francisco. And uh, to your point of your, your, your skepticism, uh, I had one woman call in and say, yeah, I'm planning on coming. By the way, my husband said, there is no way these people are not going to be selling you things. I guarantee <laughs> they're going to be selling you stuff. And when she first said that, I, I kind of took umbrage. I was like, wait, wait, wait a minute. We're on it. We are not going to be. And then I realized, you know what, lady, your husband's right. You should be incredibly suspicious about people like me. Now, it turned out we were not selling anything. In fact, we told people, we can't take you as clients. We're just going to do this. And I created, um, uh, we created some uh, material for that, for like these three-hour seminars. And then that uh, seemed not very generous to just narrow, keep it only to that narrow group. So at the time in 2007, I did like a 50-page version of the book uh, that was a lot simpler and, um, and, and put it on a website for free. And it just kept nagging at me, especially as we started doing better as a firm. I had this kind of moral realization of, you've been really generously treated there, Sonny. What are you going to do to help balance the karma balance sheet a little? Do I have to? What do you think? All right, all right. Uh, well, all right. I made a commitment 
at some point I'll do something major. And that hung over me like this, this looming thing that I was not fulfilling my vow and commitment. And finally, um, by actually it was the beginning of 2020, um, I met with an editor, like I got to do this. And that's what led to the, the, the book as a, okay, you got to get out there and provide some sort of help for people wondering the same thing you have been like, how, how do I deal with this complexity? How do I get started? Well, and I love one, the education piece is amazing and what you're doing with the book, but like you've taken that an extra step further with, you know, this is a book, this is something that is for profit for most people. And you're using it as a way to feed nonprofits. Can you talk a little bit about that too? Sure. So all the proceeds from the book and the, uh, there's also an online uh, course, an interactive online course version uh, that's basically the same content as the book. Uh, and all 100% of the, uh, my net proceeds from that is getting uh, donated to uh, charities and, and specifically the um, uh, Consumer Federation of America, their America Saves program, which promotes financial literacy. Nice. So the reason I re made that call is I talk in the book rather um, in a rather preachy tone, which anyone who knows me would know that's common, uh, a very preachy tone about the incentive problem in the financial industry. And I, it just dawned on me, okay, you better fix that incentive problem for you with this book. And the easy way to do that is to give away all the proceeds. Oh, I like that. And if you can give it to me in your preachy tone, I've also learned from you as well that uh, women <laughs> make better investors than men. So, so preach away. Oh, that, that, that part is so fun. Um, so why are women better investors than, than men? And this is just on average. Of course, there are lots of individual cases where that's not, uh, not true. But on average, women do better. And I, I've, I've asked, like, uh, in fact, I asked, I, I was teaching a, a guest lecture at a course at uh, Stanford's MBA program. And I asked, why do you think that is? And some of the questions were, is it they perceive risk differently? And one, actually a guy, a man said, isn't it because men are much more prone to being overconfident? I was like, wow, you really read your behavioral research. And that's exactly what the issue is. Um, why, are women smarter about investing? Nope. Are women better at predicting financial outcomes? No. What's different is women tend to bring a kind of, I don't know what's going to happen, so I'm not going to do anything. And men bring a, a, a preconceived notion of, well, I'm a guy. Of course I know what's going on. And men are bad at making financial predictions, as are women. But the thing that trips us up is we think we're, we're really smart and we have confidence where it's unwarranted. The, uh, another statistic I, I learned uh, after the book came out that I just love, uh, I actually came across it in a, in a book coming out soon uh, that a friend of mine wrote, and he says... What group of investors is better than women? And the answer is dead people. <laughs> uh, Fidelity, I believe, re released some uh, of their results. They looked at accounts where someone had died and no one was doing anything with the account. Like there was no trustee stepping in. And it was, I, I believe, I'm not sure of all the details. It was like, it was static. Those did better than women. Because they were doing absolutely nothing. And so his advice, again, I'm stealing this from somebody else. <laughs> if you're a man, invest more like a woman. 
If you're a woman, invest like a dead person. <laughs> that brought it right back to where we had just started a little while ago, which is, yeah, don't make too many moves. Look at it two, three times a year. That's incredible. No, no. Once every two or oh, three years. I did it backwards. Wow. It's even less. That's it's so insane. Yeah. Like don't, you, and in fact, the, the research actually shows the more you look at your portfolio balance, the worse your performance is going to be because you tend to jump in to intervene. And it's what, what I, I found really fun about writing the book is I'm still a novice. I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm a real uh, novice at this, but I learned a lot about the brain's evolution and how we're coded for survival. But the coding, if you know, in tech terms, uh, as I'm sure many of your, your guests would say, like, that's legacy software. That uh, Homo sapiens are, what, three, 400,000 years old? So what helped us survive on the plains of Central Africa, where we all came from, were a set of assumptions and pattern recognition that worked really great when you were in hunter-gatherer mode. In this modern financial world, the stuff that feels counterintuitive feels that way because it goes against the grain of, our, of the evolution of our brains. And I, I don't know I don't know the explanation for male overconfidence, but it actually ties to testosterone because when women are given testosterone in, in behavioral research studies, they start making worse decisions and exhibiting overconfidence. <laughs> so it's not a male trait. It's actually linked uh, to, this, to this hormone. And so it's just, it's a fascinating example. I, I find that so fun when I came across it because it so highlights the dangers of, of overconfidence and the, the closely related um, behavioral um, pattern that's very well recognized in, in academic research on investing that's called the illusion of control. And I love that one because it has this sort of, you know, almost Buddhist sense of what? what? But aren't we in control? And the answer is yes and no over big things like where financial markets going or which stock should I buy? We have a really bad track record as an industry. We have a bad track record as a species on outsmarting that. And you just get this weird response of, but what you call indexing, which is also called passive, it sounds so passive. And the rest of life, especially entrepreneurs, it's all about passion and seeking, uh, you know, uh, applying wisdom and, and seeking knowledge and then um, implementing it. And yes, that's great. And the funny thing about um, uh, in, in our business, we advise the, the very, very wealthy, the people who'd been successful entrepreneurs often had the most challenge with that because the only way they got really, really wealthy was through uh, a kind of savvy and spotting of trends. But once you get to the investment space, it's like, sorry, you got to unlearn all that and turn into a very humble person and you'll make a lot more money. And that's like, what? <laughs> you, you realize you're talking to me, a successful entrepreneur. It's like, I don't care. The, the track record is so bad. It doesn't mean that no one beats the market and no one can time it. But on average, both professionals and novices are bad at timing the market, are bad at picking which investments are going to outperform the stock market, say. And so you end up with this weird bit of advice of pick your balance between the riskier and the safer. Like that is a decision you need to make. Once you've made that call, don't tweak it. Don't 
play with. I mean, sort of, you know, rebalance back to your, your target, but don't muck with it. Don't look at it. And that just sounds so backwards considering how our brains are counterintuitive is the word I keep using. Well, you said a lot in there in terms of like that overconfidence, especially when it comes to men, but obviously anybody can experience that overconfidence, but sticking on confidence, you know, writing the book, like that's a different field than what you were doing in the investment space. Yes, you're writing about investing, writing about financials, but like being a writer, I'm assuming was something new to you or just maybe something, a muscle you don't use on a regular basis. So what was that process like for you? Was it difficult? Yeah. Well, that, I mean, it, it, I had done a lot of, of writing throughout my professional career. So a book was a stretch, but not a massive stretch. But how did that process work? It, um, it followed a very similar pattern uh, to what I noticed as a CEO, which you heard me talk about humility as a, as a valuable uh, trait or, or behavioral pattern when investing. And I, it's exactly how I felt about, um, or what I learned as from being a CEO is um, what, I mean, I'd never thought about this because I'd never intended to become one and didn't think that was, uh, you know, on my, in my destiny. But what I learned from being a CEO about humility is I thought, okay, you probably hire really smart people and then you take their counsel and then you make good decisions. No. You hire the smart people and then you do what they tell you to do because they're in the, in the, especially when you get a little larger, they're in the trenches. They know the problems. They know what's going on. You may know how to frame things, but you have to listen to the smart people. And the same thing happened to me with a book editor I started working with. And my first idea was a book title, um, What If You Just Told the Truth? And it was going to combine investing with um, how within an organization it's so antithetical to sort of ego and moving up the chain to always be telling the truth and similarly how hard it is to do it inside your own brain. And she heard that pitch and said, well, you're the client, so you can write that book if you want, but I got to tell you, no one's going to buy it. It's just, <laughs> it's so all over the map and you're falling into a common trap of first time authors. I got to have every idea in my head show up in this book. Just write the book on investing. If you ever want to do the other part, Go ahead. You can, you know, you can follow on. And I was like, okay, this woman's done a bunch of successful books. I've never written. I, I'm going to follow her advice. <laughs> and similarly, the editing was so good at taking, uh, you know, I wrote the book. I, it wasn't ghost written, but good editors came in and chopped a lot of it out and redid the flow. And so, again, use real professionals on on the right. So it still has my voice. But um, I got a lot of help. And that just like being a CEO, uh, man, humility is such a great way, ironically, to actually improve your performance. Absolutely. I, lo I love everything about what you just said. And also makes me feel a little bit better. Like I've had people ask me to write books in the past. I'm like, I don't have one, I don't have time and or I don't have the expertise to know how to write it in a way that people are going to love and enjoy it. Uh, and stick with it. But, you know, those editors, those people who've been doing this on a regular basis, the people who actually make this a profession, they're going to help see you through as long as you have that humility, as you say, as long as you take a step back and realize you don't know everything, you can create a really great product with a great team. And, and you do have to bring a serious time commitment. It takes a lot of energy. I mean, it's like, you know, you're birthing a book and, and you do need to bring the, uh, the commitment because it's, Hard. If someone was asking me, 
Okay, what's your next book going to be about? Ooh, I'm not sure that's not, uh, there's ever going to be a next, uh, you know, never say never, but it's a it's a heck of a, a thing to go through. I mean, I was actually fortunate in that I just started it when COVID hit, and I thought, well, you know, it's actually a little convenient that, especially during the early months of the lockdown, like, you can't really be out in the world. Well, I was up at 5 a.m. every morning writing before work, and um, so it was convenient that... I couldn't be doing much else and had that happen to uh, coincide with a, with the time when, you know, being locked up, writing a book was actually a, 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 an appropriate thing to do. Yeah, you got to make it work for you. Speaking of make it work for you, 2020 was the pandemic, obviously, when it first began here. But at the same time, that's the year that you all sold a perio group. So I, I'd love to understand, like, it sounds like you all were very successful. And that t- tends to happen when you're successful, you end up, you know, selling your company. But that also then makes me think, like, what, how do you make that decision going from having a successful company to saying, all right, I'm going to now sell this yep. and trust somebody else with this brand that I have, yep. I've helped birth. Yeah. Yep. So it was really a, a, a multi-stage process. We had um, early on a couple of the um, partners, the owners kind of wanted to take some cash off the table and we had a, a small minority stake. And then I started looking at my sort of life planning and realized uh, this has been terrific, but being a CEO is exhausting, especially if you want to be an ethical CEO. That's even more exciting. It's it's hard to make good business decisions when you got to do the right thing ethically, and you may not naturally always go that way. It's very tiring. And I realized, you know, I need to at least start the, the, the glide path, the trajectory where I can uh, get out of out of this, and I, I I was talking to a coach, and she said you're you're going to need to plan this like five years in advance. I was like I better get this thing started. So we sold a majority to a private equity firm um, with the intention of probably not selling it, and they were they were committed to allowing it to go long term. And then what happened was suddenly our space became incredibly hot, and there was basically. Uh, no way it was not going to get sold to a, 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 a big player in this space, which wouldn't have been my first choice. But in hindsight, it's been a great uh, fit ethically with, with BlackRock and how they operate. So it wasn't exactly our decision to sell it, but the way it played out was good. And I love my 30% time. I, st- I still work there as a consultant and, so it all worked out really well. But to answer your question, we didn't technically make the decision to sell. And it's almost just as well, because if we'd still had a majority control, we probably wouldn't have even have sold then. And, you know, it's great to, to be able to generate some of that uh, wealth to, to, you know, share with the people who worked on it. Um, so it all worked out fine, but it was an uh, interesting path. Yeah. I, anytime I think about a possible sale of any company that someone else has, but you know, particularly my own, it's like the thing I always worry about is like looking at my company from afar and being like, oh man, I hate the decisions that they're making. Like there, there's, it's almost like a child that you have and you're letting it go out yeah. into the world and now you have no control yep. over it anymore. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And, and we were concerned about that with BlackRock, especially when during the courtship they're going to describe oh we're going to allow the culture to continue and it's like okay yeah you're going to say that now we're over a year and a half in and 
they've they've really stepped up and right. and to their credit i mean it's still you know it's different within a big or but but they've kind of left us as an entity and and culturally um i i you know obviously i'm biased i think that was a smart call so it is very hard to figure that out and uh, uh you know for me the biggest issue was the ethics are we going to be required to sell stuff we don't believe in and and that has not happened and we're we're um you know they 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 said they valued that that kind of integrity research piece and and they really do so again <laughs> it's it's terrible for people who uh uh listen to your 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 podcast that my advice is often boils down to well, I was really, really lucky. You should be lucky too, which is not very helpful, is it? <laughs> but luck, luck is all about preparedness and and all that. You know, luck. True. Luck, luck is. I like to say it's a, yeah, timing meets preparation. I say I say it. That's yes. you know the saying that's out there. Yep. Yep. Um, well, and speaking of that, like you know, that's a big win there. But I want to leave space for you to talk about maybe other big things that are happening. Obviously, there's the book out. You know, maybe it's something that we've already yep. shared. But yeah, what are some of the wins that are happening in your life and your career here? So right now, I'm actually just greatly relieved at um, the 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 book and all the videos and the the um, online course are all done. They were basically all finally wrapped up in June. So I'm finally getting to enjoy the working uh, part time and doing some work with uh, with nonprofits. And then I'd I'd like to. Uh, I'd like it if the transparent investing movement, as it were, could, could get some traction, but I'm not treating it like another entrepreneurial venture where you really have to pour your entire life's energy into something to make it work. So I'm kind of adjusting to uh, you know, a, a very new status for me. And what's funny is people presume that the 30% is like a burden and I only did that as a negotiated. It's like, no, I picked 30% long time ago. I knew I didn't want to just retire, but even 50% was too much energy. And I'm loving the 30%. It's really terrific. I get to do the fun stuff. It's kind of like you hear, uh, you know, grandparents get to enjoy the grandkids, but when the burden gets too heavy, mm -hmm. it's like, uh, yeah, well, can you take care of them? They're being, they're being a pain. I do that as an um, uncle. It's and fine. that's how I, sorry. I do that as an uncle. It's fine. Yep. Yep. Uh, so that's what I feel. It's like I get to have all the fun, but the, 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 the two people who run the Aperio unit, like they have the hard stuff. So that's great. And the, the, the nonprofit stuff and, and the philanthropy, um, has been, um, exciting. So I'd love to get that message. And obviously you can hear there's a whole component that didn't get into the book around telling the truth. And especially within organizations, I think, uh, one of the funnest things about working at Aperio was watching kind of ethics in action and how hard it is, but it's it's got to be deeply embedded in a culture if you're going to tolerate that because power and the truth don't tend to go well together. They don't <laughs> tend to play nicely. Like power, people in power are generally going to say, well, that's all fine, but is telling the truth going to undercut my power? You know, look at, well, looking at Moscow, for example, right now, not a place where you, you're seeing a lot of truth coming out. Um, and, you know, we all have that tension, but it was really fun to watch a different approach and how 
you can do it, but how hard it is. And that's, uh, that's a whole field I'd you know, love to be working on, but we'll, you know, we'll see if the universe is interested in that. Nice. Well, let us know how we can stay updated with, you know, anything that you're doing, you know, with your website, social media, but also let us know how we can get the book Transparent Investing. Sure. So it's available where, wherever books are sold, as, as uh, they used to say in the old brick and mortar days. So uh, <laughs> you can buy it at a regular bookstore. It's, uh, it's available on Amazon. In fact, it, it hit uh, it's the number one bestseller in, uh, I think it was personal finance uh, at one point. Congrats. Um, so it's widely available the and you can learn more about it and the uh um the, the online course and you can look at all the videos on my website uh, patrickgettis.co thank you patrick Geddes, for joining us on entrepreneur struggle and thank you for listening you can learn more about patrick's work by going to our show notes thank you to my producers heather johnson ryan woodhall and mike dubose And until next episode, stay safe and healthy because the struggle is real.